July 4th, Independence Day. Because of the control Great Britain had on the 13 colonies in the New World, delegates from the colonies met to discuss what they should do. I think it is important to look back at this time and what took place. And as I said earlier, it's uh, such an important event and how God has used it in so many different ways. But I quote now as we go back to that time. One source, Richard Henry Lee, a Virginia delegate acting on behalf of the Virginia Convention, proposed to Congress a resolution on independence on June 7, 1776. The first of three provisions in this resolution read as follows. Resolved that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. And I end the quote there. Other town and colonial assemblies were issuing similar pleas. Congress debated Lee's resolution on Monday, July 1st. Nine colonies were prepared to vote in favor. The South Carolina and Pennsylvania delegations were opposed. The two Delaware delegates were deadlocked, and the New York delegates were unable to vote. Since their instructions permitted them only to pursue reconciliation with the king. Overnight, however, the situation changed. On J July 2nd, Caesar Rodney rode into Philadelphia from Dover, Del from Dover, Delaware, bringing in a tie-breaking vote for Delaware, Delaware in favor of independence. South Carolina shifted its position in favor and the Pennsylvania opponents chose to stay away. When the vote was called on July 2nd, the Lee Resolution passed by a vote of 12 to 0, with New York abstaining. After this historic decision, John Adams wrote to his wife Abigail, predicting that future Americans would commemorate their independence with a festival every 2nd of July. Well, he missed it by a couple days, but uh, from what I understand, the actual signing, again, of all 56 delegates took place August 2nd, 1776. So actually, July 2, they voted on accepting this, and then August 2nd um, was when it was actually signed. It's interesting that as far as I know, there's no other great events that happened on July 2nd until July 2nd, 1948. I'll let you ponder that. The answer is in your bulletin. We need to know as well and think about the bravery of these signers and the price that they paid for their signing. They're much maligned today as so much of the truth of our past and the people that did so much uh, 
actually in the name of the Lord and for our country, are uh, denigrated and uh, again, you understand that, how much they have gone through, uh, again, been maligned. But this is a price that they paid. Excuse me. Five signers were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds and hardships of the Revolutionary War. They signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. What kind of men were they? Twenty-four were lawyers and jurists. Eleven were merchants, nine were farmers and large plantation owners, men of means, well-educated. But they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that the penalty would be death if they were captured. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in the Congress without pay and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers or both looted the properties of Ellery, Clymer, Hall, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson Jr. noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters. The owner quietly urged General George Washington to open fire. The home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and his gristmill were laid to waste. For more than a year he lived in forests and caves returning home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. Norris and Livingston suffered similar fates. Such were the stories and sacrifices of the American Revolution. These were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ruffians. They were soft-spoken men of means and education. They had security, but they valued liberty more. Standing tall, straight, and unwavering, they pledged for the support of this declaration with firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence. We mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. These were the men that started the United States of America. 
A little fact check shows that all of the 56 signers of the De 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 Declaration of Independence were, or at least would have declared themselves Christians. The majority of them, 32 were Episcopalians, 13 Congregationalists, 12 Presbyterians, two Quakers, two Unitarians, and one Catholic. Here we have to be reminded that not all Christians, all people that uh, claim to be Christian, uh, that know Jesus, uh, claim to be Christian, know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We understand that. We know that Christians are all in a different stage of their walk with the Lord. And, uh, but these men, again, would have all uh, believed in the name of Jesus Christ and what he did, regardless of whether they accepted him as Savior. They believed the Bible, regardless of whether they believed it rightly divided or uh, as it pertained to them. Regardless, they paved the way for the most unique country in all of history, a country that for the most part has been one of giving rather than getting, and most importantly, a country that believes in the biblical sense of freedom for the individual. And for this, we can be so, so very grateful. Because of our country, you and I are able to meet this morning share a time together in the Word and uh, fellowship with one another. We know that in many places in the world that has never been true. Other places where that was true and is no longer true. Um, but we still are under that blessing. As people of the Word of God who know Jesus Christ as Savior, we know that true freedom comes from salvation in Jesus Christ. As we read in, <clears throat> in our text this morning, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He made us free. When we trust Christ, he makes us free. And we uh, want to look at that this morning. Free from the guilt of the past. There's a song um, that I loved, and the title of it is just Free. And they sing about this, free from the guilt of our past. And, and you being dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. We believe this at salvation. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we believe that he died for all of our trespasses, all of our sins. And then oftentimes we lose sight of that. Well, what about this one that I've committed since I've been saved. What about that one? What about this one? And the guilt remains, or it comes back in, it seeps back in. But Jesus Christ died for all of them. We weren't even born uh, when he died on the cross for our sins. He saw them all. We didn't see them all. <laughs> uh, only as we commit them, when we do, 
My sins are all gone. The song that I love again, another song, they sing, they're underneath the blood at the cross of Calvary. I used to listen to that song, and the people that I heard singing it sound like the chipmunks when they sing, and I used to laugh at it till I listened, laughed at them, until I listened to the words. And then I would listen to the song and listen to the words, and I don't know how many times tears came down my face as I would listen to it anew underneath the blood at the cross of Calvary. And, of course, we know they don't even exist in the eyes of God anymore. They're gone. They're, they're nowhere. They're not covered. They're gone. God doesn't see our sin at all. And it's something that, again, it, it, it's sad to see so many Christians living in guilt. And God never intended that. He never intended that in Christ for us to live in guilt. Your, your sins are gone. King David knew what he needed after his sin with Bathsheba to be freed from his past. And uh, Psalm 51, I've learned to love this uh, psalm. There's so much here. And as we read it, just a little footnote here. Notice that David never, ever does anything but talk about how God alone can do the work in his heart that needs to be done. He doesn't ask for help. He doesn't ask for anything, but you, God, do what you alone can do. This is such an important principle that we need to know, to look to God when it comes to our heart and everything else as far as that goes. But we don't need his help. We need to do what he alone can do. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me. See what it takes to be a witness for Jesus Christ? A cleansed heart a cleansed heart. Then I will teach transgressions your way. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall open forth and my mouth shall open forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and a contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. It is him, it is Jesus Christ that frees us of the guilt of our past. That's what he was doing at the cross for you and I. Also, he gives us freedom from the fear of tomorrow. Freedom of the fear of tomorrow. Free from the fear of hell. When we're adults and unsaved, we know where we are going. We know what future is for us, whether we admit to it or not. We know that when we leave this world, we're going to be a place that uh, is miserable beyond uh, belief, if you will. Um, but in Jesus Christ, that fear is no longer there. We no longer have that fear of hell. We know we're going to be in a different uh, place. Um, we're free from the doubts of my future, a home in heaven, home in heaven. We know exactly where we're going to be when we leave this earth. It's one thing that gets uh, the Kern and the Herther family through this, and they know where mom's going to be. They know where Mrs. Herther's going to be, where grandma's going to be, and they will meet her again when once the Lord uh, takes us all home. <clears throat> and freedom comes from believing this and knowing it. And the Lord tells us very clearly through the Apostle Paul uh, what we're, where we're to put our minds in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. It was the first sermon I ever preached was on this passage because it means so much to me. And I was living in the freedom in Christ and uh, freedom of my future. And this is not my home. And so many ugly things, so many anti-God things going on all around us all around the world today, and one day this will never, we never have to think about it again because this is not our home. Our home is with the Lord in heaven. It brings us to the place, my father is on the throne, and I needn't fear what man can do to me. Here's another, there's another freedom, and this is the one that, uh, too many Christians suffer with freedom from self. Freedom from self. Our self-image, if you will, what we think of ourselves because of our failures and all of these things, I'm not good enough, and what people say about me and all these things. Uh, Christ set us free of that. We no longer need to dwell on our uh, insecurities, if you will, or what we're not. Um, with me, I was a little guy, uh, still am, I guess. Um, my dad always told me I was a runt, never would amount to anything. You know, this is what I grew up with. And I got in the Army and found out I wasn't quite as bad as he thought I was. But 
It was interesting. I, I learned a lot, even though not putting the things together. Once I got in the Army and got from, with men all around the country, I learned that uh, so many people have problems. And we had uh, one man in my platoon in basic training, and just a little guy, not much to look at, a lot of trouble, really a troubled heart. And uh, uh, he was so insecure that, and, and felt so bad about himself that every once in a while uh, he would attempt to jump out a window knowing there would be guys that would hold him back and keep him from doing it. Well, I've always, I didn't realize this either, I've always been somewhat of a counselor. And I finally went to him and I said, you know, if you jump out this second story window, you're just going to hurt yourself. And you're going to feel worse then than you do now. I said, yep, the roof is about four stories high. If you get up there and hit the sidewalk, then you'll, you know, take care of what you want to take care of. You know, he never did that again. <laughs> and, of course, I'm not proud of that. Uh, I wish I'd known Christ and could have helped him at that time. That's what he needed was Jesus. When my father sees me, he doesn't see what I see. He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. And he wants me to renew my mind in, in that, that I am hidden in, with Christ in God. You know, what can be more elevating than that? There's nothing that can be. Hidden with Christ in God. My father looks at me and he sees Jesus Christ's righteousness. Doesn't matter what I see. Is that uplifting? Is that what can bring us out of the quagmire of our thoughts uh, against ourselves and things and what other people can do? Uh, there is no better self-image than that. If my father isn't down on me for my imperfections, and I have plenty... Why should I be? When my father says I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness, I no longer care what anyone else thinks about me because he is the God of grace and I'm to be imitator of him. I am to look at criticism and see if it is valid, see if there is the validity to what someone has said about me. Um, and if his criticism is wrong, then it's his problem, not mine. Um, very important, that's grace. But the truth is, actually, if we're standing fast in our freedom in Jesus Christ, we will be criticized. We will be criticized. If you're not criticized, maybe you're not free in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. But we will be. If we're going through life having a good time, uh, people are going to criticize it and try to destroy that. I'm not, and you shouldn't be either. That's the attitude. We're free in God's grace alone. We're free in God's grace alone. One of the criticisms within the church is grace is the preaching and teaching of grace, that which in which we're free. Um, many fear uh, grace 
has a license to sin. The problem is there is no freedom in sin. But when we're free and we're enjoying our life, you know, people come along and they've got their own little laws that uh, destroy grace. My wife and I were at a, some kind of conference over in Milwaukee uh, representing the school. We had our little booth and uh, it was a bunch of Christian things there. And these hosts, they come around with some donuts. And uh, my wife and I, of course, took one and enjoyed the donut, and there's another and uh, uh, quote-unquote leader in a grace organization, and uh, he come along and talked about nutrition and how bad donuts were for you and everything like that, and uh, we agreed, we knew, you know, they're, they're not the best food. Well, to eat they are, but <laughs> not for your physical health. So anyway, time went on, we were bored, and these people come around again. They knew they had already given us a donut, but they insisted we have another one. So we had another one. And this person came unglued. He came over and gave us a lecture. You wouldn't believe it. Two adults having a donut in Greece. <laughs> it is unreal. See, I just... No, that isn't what God gives us to do. That, it, God set us free. Now, yeah, and I'll just, we'll just go on from there. But there's no freedom in sin. Uh, and I'm not saying eat donuts is sin. Don't get me wrong there. <laughs> uh, that's what Psalm 51 was with King David. He had sinned terribly. There was absolutely no freedom for him at all. My sins are before me constantly. There is freedom in grace alone. In Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now the church in many... Uh, you know, they put that to the Ten Commandments, but it's any any rule, regulation, things that the church makes up, whatever, that whereby we approach God. Some kind of law or legalism is what it is, and uh, to make us better in God's eyes. This, this man would have actually believed that not eating donuts made him look better in God's eyes. It was his law. There's freedom and grace alone, and there's never freedom in sin. Freedom in dependency. You know what oxymoron is? Two words together that don't fit. <laughs> I'm free, I'm dependent. No, <laughs> no, that, that doesn't add up, and yet that's exactly what we're called to. Um, Jesus Christ lived it out in his humanity, and uh, again, uh, something that we can learn from him and should. Uh, in his humanity, Jesus lived a life of faith. He lived in complete dependency of his father. And he said that a lot of times, and I'm going to read a lot of them. I don't know if I got them all. Excuse me. 
John chapter 5 and verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. Did you hear that? <laughs> really, it says it all right there. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own, but will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 8, 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. John twelve forty nine, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. John 14.10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Excuse me. <clears throat> John 14.24, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John fifteen fifteen, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. Over and over the Lord showed that he could do nothing except what the Father had him to do. The Apostle Paul was referring his life of that same dependency for him in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. <clears throat> it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that's what Paul's talking about, a life of, his life of dependency. What I'm doing, what I'm talking, what I'm preaching, what I'm writing is not of me. It's of Christ. It's of him. I'm depending upon him. Where I go, what I'm doing, it's of him. It's what he's called me to, his leading, his guiding, his words. A life of dependency. This is meant for the believer today as well. That's why it's in the work. But the Father who dwells in me does the work. Who dwells in the believer today? The Spirit of God dwells within us. Dwells within us. In Galatians, Galatians 1.29, to this end, Paul says, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. This is a reference to the Spirit of God in Paul's life. I once pointed this passage out, the verses before that, to a pastor, and he pointed it to this, and, and what he meant by that is you need to be out working, doing, well, a Christian isn't called to be a doer. He's to be a believer and to trust Christ in his life. And as Paul, those works will come out 
in a mighty way. We're blessed with the indwelling spirit, giving us Christ's life, and are encouraged to live that life in dependency of the Father who freed us through his Son. People, this is so freeing. This is so freeing. When I learned these principles in the 80s, and I, the Lord told me very clearly one day that he'd give me the gift of pastor-teacher. No fear. No fear. There was a rest in my heart, and I knew that's what he wanted me to do and was calling me to. BBI, with no formal education, Rain Bible Institute, and he took me there. Again, no fear. I knew that's where he wanted me and uh, what he wanted me to do. And in time, he showed me that's what he had prepared me for. See, uh, again, all of this fear and stuff that people talk about that are in ministry causes me to question, are you free in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you truly there because he's called you or because someone has told you you need to be there. And uh, <clears throat> very important and very freeing. And of course, we've been talking about it, but there's freedom in Christ alone. Freedom in Christ alone. He alone frees us and, uh, and again, a beautiful, wonderful thing. There's three basics to living a life of freedom. They're so simple that most people, they're aware of the words, they're aware of the verses, but they're not aware of how they affect their lives. There's just three basics to living a life of freedom. Number one, believing God's word is truth. John 17, 17, Jesus says to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus Christ, God said this, and therefore it's true. Believing Jesus Christ is the truth is number two. John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we look at this as salvation. It's absolutely right and precious and wonderful and wonderful in our lives. But... We, we neglect, Jesus Christ says, I am the truth. So God's word is the truth, and, and Jesus Christ is the truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the third one is believing Jesus Christ will make you free. John eight thirty two, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now we Stop here for Bible believers. We stop with this. If you know this, it'll make you free. No, this brings Christ and the freedom that we have in Him. But we can't divorce the living word with the written word. You can't do that. If you do, you're not going to be free in Jesus Christ. But those three basics, they're so simple. Even I can remember those. And then when we're free, we're to stand fast in our freedom. Galatians 5.1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. 
We need to have the same attitude as the signers of the Declaration of Independence. They had wealth and security, but they valued liberty more. I decided early in my life when the Lord uh, was able to get these things through to my heart that no one was going to take this freedom away from me. No one. I don't care what you lay on me from the word or your um, slant on doctrine, whatever. No one's going to take that away from me. If I have to uh, divorce myself from the church, I will, but you're not going to take the freedom that God has given me in him. And I've spent my life helping others to see the freedom that we've had in Je- we have in Jesus Christ. Complacent Christians that do not stand fast in their freedom are why we're in the mess we are in today, pure and simple. But again, so many of them have never had the basics of what it means to be free in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been given a lot of stuff, many, but these simple truths that every one of us need to know and every one of you can remember as you leave this room. If I can, you can. I may not be able to quote the verse uh, reference, but, but I can quote the truth. We have to recognize freedom's true enemy, and uh, that, of course, is Ephesians 6.10. Finding my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh, flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You know what putting on the armor is? It's putting on Christ. Every piece of the armor It's his. It's him. It's putting on him. That's what we're to do. We're to put on him. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, and uh, salvation, the sword of the spirit which he gives us, it's all him. The word of God. He is the word of God. And then praying as he prayed, constantly talked to the Father. So we are to be like our founding fathers in our life in Christ, standing tall, straight, and unwavering. They pledged for the support of this declaration with firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence. We mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Nothing in this world means anything when we have our home in heaven and our fathers in our life. through his spirit. Former President Ronald Reagan written 30 odd years ago, wrote 30 odd years ago, the struggle now going on for the world, and it hasn't changed, it's only worse, will never be decided by bombs or rockets, by armies or military might. The real crisis we face today is a spiritual one. At root, it is a test of moral will and faith. And something for us to rest in that he also said, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. Evil is powerless 
if the good are unafraid. We stop and we finish with, are you standing fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free? Let's pray. Father, how your truth fills us. Your truth certainly frees us, and as we are into your word and the freedom contained there, how it fills our hearts, how we thank you for that, Father. How you have called us, your children, to a life of freedom. Freedom from the future, freedom from the past, freedom from ourselves. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, our past is gone and we have life, life in you. And you have called us, you set us free and you have called us to a life of freedom. How we praise you for that. Father, our prayers, our hearts are for those that do not experience this freedom that they learn and rest in the truth that is so simple, so clear. It simply means letting you be who you are, the great and wonderful God that you are. And Father, our prayer this morning, anyone here that's not living in that freedom, anyone here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, that today will be the day that they uh, trust in you for salvation. Father, again, we pray for the things coming up. May they always glorify you, and may you use them in a wonderful way. And we pray now in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.